Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from The Message. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing and how you can get involved, check out our website, message.org.uk. Good afternoon. Hey, great. Lovely to be here. And uh, I love what you guys do. I don't think Home for Good would have started without um, visionaries like Andy setting the pace in the nation for what the church should be doing on behalf of vulnerable people. So thank you, Andy, for what you've done, pioneering the way uh, in all sorts of different ways. Um, I have some slides. Yes, I do. Are you, are you ready for a conversation? All right, we're going to do Bible teaching, um, but I'm going to ask you some questions and you can ask me some questions. Is that, is that all right? You up for that? Brilliant. Um, let, me, let me start with a little story. Um, I am not from Manchester. Did you, did you guess it? Um, I was born in Brighton. Oh, come on. Loving it. But my mum uh, was born in India. And my dad was born in Malaysia. My dad's dad was born in Sri Lanka. Are you following so far? Okay, you're doing better than most people. And, uh, but my mum's dad, I've got a picture of. Now, look, which way is it? Is that, is that the right one? Right, right click. Yes, there he is. There's my mum's dad. You're thinking which one, right? Which one is he? He's the one on the right. My mum's dad was Irish. So it gets complicated, doesn't it? When it comes to uh, the World Cup, uh, cricket, the Olympics, like who the heck do I cheer for when this is my ancestry? What, what do I do? So my mum's dad, he was a crack shot, right? He, if ever there was a man-eating tiger in the village in India, he was called in to take it out. So this is not a trophy killing. This that little tiger at the front was a man-eating tiger ravaging through the village. And my granddad got called in to shoot it and rescue the village. And when the Second World War broke out, my granddad was deployed in uh, North Africa, in El Alamein. He was fighting Rommel. And uh, he was providing covering fire for his uh, mates. And they all got out, but no one provided covering fire for him. So he got killed. And he's, um, he's buried in the desert. And he got honoured by the Queen. Uh, he was given the Military Cross, which apparently is the second highest award that he could have got. Uh, if he'd got the Victoria Cross, that was number one. But he got the Military Cross, that's number two. But his daughters, he had three daughters. My mum was the oldest. And his wife were not really welcomed in the village uh, where they were born. Uh, because back then, being mixed race was not a really cool thing, as it is now. My uh, adopted daughter calls herself a mixed chick. Have you heard of that? She's very proud of that. She loves, she's got really cool hair that's kind of really long and kind of, uh, kind of afro. And uh, she's got kind of pale skin. And mixed chick is cool. But back then, mixed, mixed chicks were not welcomed. In fact, they were given a horrible name. They were called half-caste, which is an offensive term nowadays, isn't it? And because they didn't fit in, they were sent to three different orphanages across India. Because better to have them out of sight and out of mind. So that was pretty horrible. Anyway, a grand aunt in Brighton heard about the plight of these three sisters and brought them to the UK. And my mum, uh, she was about 16 by then, she decided to train to be a nurse in Brighton. And she used to go up the hill to um, the Royal Sussex County Hospital. That was where she was trained. And on the way, sometimes people were really rude to her. They'd throw a banana at her and tell her to go black home. 
Isn't that clever? Aren't they clever, those racist people? Go black home, what a brilliant little play on words. Well done. Uh, they'd say, go black home to Pakistan. Okay, they were clever with words, but they didn't know any geography. <laughs> so, didn't get that right. People were surprised my mum knew how to use a knife and a fork, because obviously in the jungle, no one uses a knife and a fork. That's what they thought. Uh, they thought she'd grown up with Mowgli and these kind of spare wolves going around. And my mum just faced all this kind of racist, xenophobic abuse. And so she decided to launch a one-woman campaign, a resistance campaign. And so on Friday nights, my mum would boil up a massive pot of rice and what's called cassie stew. It's kind of a, a curry. And she'd invite anyone that didn't really fit in to be welcomed into her home. It's lovely, isn't it? She didn't have a lot, but what she had, she fought and she made a resistance movement. You don't have to have a lot, do you, to fight back against racism and xenophobia. You can fight back with whatever you've got. And all she had was a bit of rice and curry. So she used to invite international students to come round who didn't feel like they belonged in Brighton, neighbours that didn't feel like they belonged, in they came. And uh, she met my dad that way, which was nice. And uh, they got married, and uh, that's how I came along. If you're not quite sure how that works, Andy and Michelle do an amazing little seminar about it with diagrams, and <laughs> it's brilliant. Just ask him for it, and they'll give it to you. So I grew up in this household where it wasn't unusual for random strangers to pop out at our house and be welcomed in. The one I remember, I think I must have been about nine or ten years old, and there's a knock at the door. We open the door, and there's this huge guy filling up the door frame. And um, my mum says, yeah, how can I help? And he says, well, I've just arrived in Brighton. Um, in, I came in at Gatwick Airport, and I was sitting next to this girl on the plane, and we got on really well. And uh, then we said goodbye. And then and I, as I was going through customs, I realised I had something to declare. My undying love for this girl that I met on the plane. But this was way back in the last century before we had Snapchat and Facebook and Instagram and all that sort of stuff. I haven't even got her number. All I know is she lives in Brighton. So he was going door to door to every one of Brighton's 110,000 houses until he found her. Now, what would you do, right? Kind of creepy stalker guy looking for girl met on aeroplane. My mum goes, well, you'd better come in makes him some hot tea, hears the rest of his story, and then decides to welcome him to stay for the night in our lounge. Which was great for this German guy, but not great for me, because my bedroom was opposite the lounge. So I take every little bit of furniture I can move, and I stick it to my order barricade behind the door. I'm under my duvet with a little Swiss army knife for protection. I hadn't realised that, you know, he could have just gone upstairs and murdered my mum and dad and my sister who didn't have a Swiss army knife or a barricade. But I wake up the next morning, checking I'm still alive and everything, and uh, he's still storing in the lounge, so we're all right. But I'd, I'd love it. So we said goodbye to him. I'd love it if somewhere in the world there was a German-English couple that got together. And when people ask them how they met, they talk about a small Indian woman that believed in love and was able to offer refuge to a German door-to-door <laughs> stalker. <laughs> Hospitality. Hospitality. What does it mean to you? How important is it to the Christian life? How important is it right now? 
coronavirus. What's that going to mean? We're seeing shop uh, shelves completely empty of loo roll for some random reason because it doesn't give you the runs. Uh, hand sanitizer, baked beans, uh, chopped tomatoes. It's all gone, isn't it? You try to get tomatoes? All gone. Yeah, yeah. Tin tomatoes are gone. Only the £1.70 ones are left, apparently, I hear. <laughs> so we're living in a moment, aren't we? And, and some people say that, you know, it's the crisis that changes people. Actually, I heard someone say, actually, crisis reveals people. It shows you what you're really made of. We live in a culture that says, look out for number one. Grab everything off the shelves. Store it up. Don't worry about everyone else. Everyone else is a problem, a competitor. Look out for number one. What does the Christian gospel have to say about how we live right now in this moment? What can we learn? I want to take you on a little journey. It's going to involve a couple of questions for you. And then we're going to open the Bible together. I, are, we, are we making friends? Yeah, that's good. It, I haven't revealed to you my football team yet. That's all right. So we can still be friends. I'm going. All right. Um, we might fall out now. Okay, just trigger alert. I'm going to show you a picture that might freak you out for a minute. Okay. I want you to turn to your neighbor and ask them. Oh, this one. What color? What color's the dress? Just talk to your neighbor for a minute. What colour's the dress? It's weird, isn't it weird? Isn't it freaky? You could be sat next to someone, uh, you know, you might even be related to someone, married to someone, you might be the same age as someone, but you still see something different. Isn't that weird? For me, that's a little picture of what the gospel does to you, what believing in Jesus does to you. It changes not just what you do with 10% of your money or 10% of your time, it changes the way you see everything. Everything's different. In Romans 12, Paul calls it the renewing of your mind. In 2 Corinthians, uh, Paul says, now we can't look at anyone in a worldly way anymore. The gospel has changed us. It's transforming how we see the world. It transforms how we see the coronavirus, actually. We're not going to panic like everybody else because the gospel's rebooted our brains that we say, however bad this is, there's still a good God in charge. The gospel changes the way that we see everything. But I want to test that. I'm going to show you a picture and I'm going to tell you what most people see. And then I want you to think what God sees. I'm going to show you a picture of what most people see and then you think what God sees. All right, this is a little lad. His name is Robert. Uh, Robert is five years old. This is not Robert's real name and you can't see Robert's face because Robert is still in the care system. Robert has been in foster care for most of his life because of something pretty terrible that happened to him that means he can no longer live with his mum and dad. So there he is living in a foster family. And Robert has been available for adoption for most of his life. But he's got a couple of things against him. Number one, Robert is five years old. 80% of the people that come forward for adoption in the UK are coming because of infertility. And infertility is a... a, a tough thing to wrestle with and we the church are not always brilliant at helping people walk through that in fact church can be a tough place to be in fact you can get a nudge uh, from a, a a couple saying when are you guys going to get started you know what you can't wait forever and people don't know all the hidden pain going on behind closed doors in fact next Sunday is the hardest Sunday to turn up at church if you're wrestling with infertility it's mother's day isn't it 
you know, do you give everyone in the church a daffodil? Or do you give it only to people that have got birth children? Or do you give two to people who haven't got children because it's some kind of substitute, having a second flower? I mean, it's just a nightmare. In fact, Home for Good, we produce some resources to help churches handle this well because we want to make it less about you and more about the kids that are waiting for mothers in their lives. Wouldn't that be a nice twist on it? Anyway, so if infertility is your driver into adoption, often what you really want is what? A baby, a brand new, perfect little baby, no strings, just taken from one family and plonked into yours, and you can pretend they ever had another family. But the kids that are waiting to be adopted, and there's over 3,500 of them in the UK, they're more like Robert. They're five years old. They, they might have a brother or a sister. People are willing to adopt the younger sister but not the older brother. Can you imagine what that does to you if you're the older brother? Can't live with my mum and dad anymore. At least I've got my sister. No, someone wants my sister but no one wants me. Imagine what that does to you. Messes you up. Robert has a problem because he's five. Robert has a problem because he has speech delay which means he can't express himself in the way that he'd like to. And at school, his teacher, who loves him to bits but wants to be honest in the bio about him, says, well, sometimes that works out as difficult to manage behaviour. And so people read that and they go, hold on. If he is difficult to manage at five, what's he going to be like at 15? This is a problem child. This is someone else's problem child. And so they click on to the next profile, hoping for a nicer kid. This has happened to Robert his whole life, and he's left behind. Now, sadly, kids that grow up in foster care and age out somewhere between 18 and 21, a lot of them are 18. It's not always a story, but sadly, the statistics are against them. If you age out of foster care and you don't have an ongoing family, some pretty bad things can happen to you. Maybe you know from your own experience. Kids that age out of foster care make up 1% of the UK population, but they make up 25% of the homeless population. Kids that have experienced the care system make up between 40 and 50% of the prison population. Maybe you know that because you've been working in prisons. You know how many times this story comes up again and again. In some parts of the UK, um, female sex workers, it's 70% are care-experienced young women. Now, I know you guys are passionate about all of these groups of people, and I love it. I cheer you on. Every time I hear Andy, I want to give my life to Jesus again. <laughs> you are doing amazing work. But wouldn't it be amazing if instead of waiting for the system to chew people up and spit them out, we got involved when they were five years old and they needed a family like Robert? Wouldn't that make a difference? Can't promise you it's all going to be kind of roses, but these kids have a better chance of a normal life if, if God's involved and we're involved, don't they? So I've told you what most people see. Problem child, someone else's problem child. Not for me, difficult. What does God see? All right, to be honest, I did this same question with a bunch of southerners yesterday in Brighton. It was one of them posh HTB type churches and they did really well at this question. So there's no... There's no competition in the kingdom. I reckon you can blast them. You can blow them away. Uh, just, in, in, just chat to your neighbour. We'll have this side versus this side. Reds versus blues, you choose. And um, come up with three things you think God sees when he looks at Robert. Have a go. Let's chat in a minute. 
Okay, you ready? I'm going to call you the Reds. You can be the Blues. It's too late, guys. Sorry, man. Uh, wait, you only want to be the Reds, though. This is Liverpool over here. <laughs> anyway, um, give me something. One person, give me something. What does God see when he looks at Robert? Anyone? Is he a child? Yeah. He, he doesn't see a looked-after child. He just sees a child. He sees a child. Can I, can, I, can, I, can I riff on that a bit? Is it safe to say that God sees a child that he loves? You up for that? Isn't it that verse in the Bible? What's it? John 3, oh man, 16, 16, is that right? For God so loved middle class white people. Is that right? That's the, that's the ESV version, isn't it? Yeah. For God so loved the world. Every single person on this planet is loved by God. Every single one. Whether they are from a looked after background, whether they've been inside, uh, whether they're young or old, abled or disabled, black or white, gay or straight, Christian, Muslim or Jew, doesn't mean the world has responded to God's love appropriately, but God loves the world. Isn't that right? And if God loves the world, he loves Robert. And if God loves Robert, what does that mean for me? When I lived in Albania, a mate of mine had a, a sign outside his house. It said this, love me, love my dog. It's a package deal, right? Couldn't have him without the dog. God's got the same package deal. Do you know it? It's the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You can't choose. You can't say, I'll have God, but I won't have my neighbour. You can't say, I'll have God, but I won't have Robert. It's a package deal, comes together. Thank you. God loves Robert. God sees a child in Robert. Someone on this side. He sees a son. Interesting. So God is the father of all humanity. That's right, isn't it? And, and that has some implications too. Think about this. My daughter, she's 18 years old, and she has a mirror in her room. Apparently it's a teenager thing. And underneath the mirror, there's a Bible text we want under it. What Bible text would I want underneath my daughter's mirror? It's this one from Psalm 139. Fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what I want. That's what I want her to know. Whatever the vloggers say or the beauticians say or the magazines say, whether she's too fat or too thin, whether she's got the wrong kind of lips or not, whether she's too white or too dark, I want her to know she's fearfully and wonderfully made because she's a child of God. Isn't that right? A friend of mine was told when she was 17 by her mother that her mother wished she'd had an abortion. Can you imagine what that did to her? Blew her up. And I was a 17-year-old too. And I'd just become a Christian. And all I could think was, oh, that must be awful what your mum said, but look, there's another story here. God wanted you here. Whatever the background here, God wanted you here. God knit you together in your mother's womb. Even if she didn't want you there, God wanted you there. And therefore, you are intrinsically valuable. Very good. You're doing very well. Give me something else on this side. One more. Yeah. Opportunity and potential. Look, everyone's writing this boy off. At five, because of his history, people have written off his future. That is not a Christian way of looking at anyone or anything. 
You know, many people have written off parts of Manchester and say they're irredeemable, right? But you've seen something different. You've seen a hope and a future. You've seen redemption. Many people are writing these children off and say, look, because of what's happened to them, because of the early years trauma, their life is a disaster. It does not have to end that way. Think about your own story. What were you like before Jesus got involved in your life? We were a mess, weren't we? But God turned us around. That's what he's in the business of doing. So we can't look at any situation or any person and think they're beyond hope because we weren't beyond hope. Does that make sense? Now listen, we're not being idealistic here. We're not being naive. 70% of the kids in the care system have experienced neglect or sexual or physical abuse. That stuff does not go away if you just say a few prayers over them. Or if you read some little stories like in Despicable Me about little kittens, if you read that every night before they go to sleep, then they'll have no problems. Or if they come to your amazing Sunday school class for three weeks and they hear enough Bible stories, then they'll be all right. That's not the way. We're going to have to walk with these kids through suffering and pain, sometimes for the rest of their lives because of what's happened to them. But with the grace of God and with your help, we still believe there's hope, real hope. Not vague or, or kind of airy-fairy hope, but real hope of transformation. Isn't that right? All right, you've done really well. I've got two more for you, and one of them involves a Bible passage. Has anyone got any pictures on their phones of their family? Yeah? Is that, is that a normal thing? I've probably got 5,000 pictures of my family on my phone. Uh, I don't know about you. I'm not one of those Apple clones. I'm a Samsung guy. Yeah, I'm a free thinker. Now... Imagine I showed you a picture of my family. I've got three birth kids, three uh, fostered and adopted children, and one wife. And uh, imagine I show you a picture of my family, and when you see it, your nose wrinkles up. Even worse, I know we're in Manchester, so it's unlikely to happen. Imagine you were to spit on a picture of my family. At one level, it doesn't matter. Did I mention this was a Samsung phone? This is a Samsung Galaxy Note 10 Plus. It's a waterproof phone, right? So your saliva is doing no damage to me. I could just wipe it off. It's also an Android phone, which means all my pictures are instantly backed up on the Google Cloud. Thank you very much. So even if you had toxic saliva that got inside my phone, somehow no damage done. But symbolically, you spit on a picture of my family? What does that say? What you do to the image is an indicator of how you feel about the ones being imaged. Does that make sense? It's just, it's just some pixels on a screen, but symbolic. You spit on a picture, it says something about how you feel about the one being imaged. Who is Robert? Robert is made in the image of God. What you do or don't do to him is how you feel about the God he images. That's why those two greatest commandments connect together, don't they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, because your neighbor is made in the image of God. And therefore, our worship is less about what we sing and what we read, and it's more about what we do towards the most vulnerable in our society. Does that make sense? That's why there's no difference between you working... Um, 
to help vulnerable people and you singing, that's all part of your worship. There's not a time of worship. Have you heard people say that? We're not going to have a time of worship. Well, what are you doing the rest of the time? Surely the whole of life is worship. And the worship that counts the most is what we do on behalf of vulnerable people. Now you're going, hold on, that, that's a step too far, Chris. You've crossed a line. Well, let me show you a Bible passage just briefly. Could you stick it up? It's probably the most dangerous Bible passage in the Bible. And I, t- I say that because it gets me in trouble everywhere. This Bible passage gets me in trouble when I speak in what you might describe as conservative churches. I don't mean conservative party churches. I mean theologically conservative churches. Um, this, this Bible passage also gets me in trouble when I go and speak to progressive churches. Um, and maybe you can see what. I'll read it to you, and then I'll make three observations, and then I'll call you to a bit of action. Does that sound all right? This is Matthew 25. The reason I feel I'm on safe ground here is if you've got one of those Bibles that puts the words of Jesus in red, all of this is in red, right? So if you don't like this, don't shoot the messenger. You've got to take it up with Jesus. Is that fair enough? All right, that's all we're going to do. All right, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now stop here. This is a parable, but weirdly, it's being very explicit about what it's telling you about. This is the clearest parable where Jesus talks about the day of judgment. Day of judgment, not a hot topic within progressive churches. We don't like day of judgment. It's a bit kind of awkward. But here it is. Conservative churches like the day of judgment a lot, but they still don't like this parable. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Now pause here. What is the deciding factor for those who are in the kingdom and those who aren't. You ask most Christians, they say, well, surely it's whether you prayed the sinner's prayer. You know, you, you, you offered your life to Jesus. That's the bottom line. Uh, some churches would say, no, it's, it's whether you've got correct doctrine, you know, whether you believe the right things about God. Uh, other churches would say, well, you know, it's, it's giving 10% of your uh, money to uh, the church. It's about church attendance. It's about whether you've been baptized in the right number, amount of water or not. It's whether you call yourself a Christian. But when you actually ask Jesus, what does he say? I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Now, people get really jumpy now because this doesn't sound like the gospel that we know or share. Do you know what people get jumpy about? Salvation by works. Here's a big one. Did Jesus get the gospel wrong? You know, I've heard, you know, if, if Jesus had only read a little bit more Paul, then he'd have been all right. Even worse, maybe Jesus should have read a little bit more Calvin and Luther, and he'd have been right. Hear this. I'm really, really old school on this. Maybe you know this verse. It's from Paul, 2 Timothy 3.16. 
all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. The whole Bible coheres together. You can't be selective. You can't say, I'll have a bit of Jesus, but not a bit of Paul. Or I like James, but I don't like Luke. You can't, I can't say I like the New Testament and not the Old Testament. All scripture is God-breathed. There is no way Jesus got the gospel wrong. And actually, there's no fight between Jesus and Paul. So how do you make sense of this? The defining feature of whether you're in the kingdom or not is how you respond to the most vulnerable in society. Your work matters to God. It's not just a fringe idea for a bunch of strangely wired Christians. This is essential to the Christian life. Are you hearing me? So how do we relate to this? Look, look, a long time ago, I used to do maths at school. And uh, I sat a statistics exam once. Weirdly, I got zero in the statistics exam. I thought that was so statistically unlikely they should have given me an A. The only thing I remember from statistics is causation and correlation are not the same thing. For example, I was driving here from Oxford and as I'm driving I see some big wind turbines by the side of the motorways. You ever seen them? And have you noticed that the, the faster that those wind turbines spin, the windier it gets? Have you noticed that? When we're having bad weather, all you need to do is turn the wind turbines off and it'll all be better, wouldn't it? Now, there is a correlation between wind speed and turbine speed. But if you get the causation wrong, you end up saying something stupid. There is a link. There is a connection between good works and salvation. But if you get the causation wrong, you end up saying something stupid. Maybe you know in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Uh, Paul says that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith. This is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast about it. There you go, really simple. No one is saved by good works. If you could have been saved by good works, there was no need for Jesus to die on the cross. Right? Jesus died on the cross because none of us had enough good works. But do you know Ephesians 2.10? It says this, For we were God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do the good works which God had prepared in advance for us to do. You were not saved by your good works, but you were saved for good works. Are you with me? God had a plan. He didn't just want to rescue you. He wanted to use you to kick back at the darkness in the world, to fight for justice and to show the grace of God to those that needed it the most. Isn't that right? You were not saved by your good works, but for good works. Your good works, your caring for vulnerable people is a sign that you have been saved. It does not make you saved. If there's no compassion and grace in you, you have to ask if you've been saved at all. But if there is, it gives you encouragement that God is at work. It's like a cascade. You've received mercy and grace from God because you didn't deserve it. And now you pass it on to other people that don't deserve it. That's the flow of grace, and we get to be caught up in it. It's amazing. That's why Jesus says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to eat. You know what? People don't even remember it. When did we see you, Jesus, hungry or thirsty or needing something to eat? When, when did we see that? Jesus says, what you did for the least of these, you did for me. Isn't that right? Isn't that why we do it? And becomes an instinct in us that we just naturally want to share grace with people that are in need because Jesus has caught us up. The next slide is hard. This is the bit 
that progressives find most difficult. When he will say, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Do you know why this is a difficult passage? Because Jesus is talking about eternal punishment. He's talking about hell. Now, there are some Christians that really seem to enjoy talking about hell. One of them lives, well, I think he lives, he's always there in Oxford Circus. You ever been there? There's a guy with a megaphone just telling everyone they're going to turn or burn, repent or perish. He seems to get off on scaring people. That is not what I hear from Jesus. He's not trying to scare people into the kingdom. But he is trying to warn them. In my house, when we have, so we have six kids. The oldest is 21, the youngest is eight. And sometimes we get a surprise emergency baby that turns up because social workers haven't got anywhere else for him or her to go. And so we've got some really strict rules in our house. One of our rules is do not lick the plug sockets. Right? I've got that rule not because I hate children, but because I love children. Isn't that right? I'll tell kids not to lick the plug sockets, not because I want to suppress them and scare them, but I want to protect them and love them. Jesus tells us about the consequences of ignoring him, not to scare us, but to protect us. When we talk about heaven and hell, we're not trying to scare anyone, but we're just trying to protect people from consequences that should have been for us. All of us deserved it, but by the grace of God, we'd be snatched away from it. That's why Jesus is here talking about this stuff. This is life and death. This is the normal Christian way, or you're not a Christian at all, says Jesus. So when you look at Robert, yes, you see someone who's a son, someone who has potential, someone who's loved by God, someone who's made in the image of God. But you know what? We should see Jesus. Because what we do for the least of these, we do for him. I sometimes think about the cross. I remember when I was about eight or nine years old, I'd just become a Christian. I was reading the story of the crucifixion. And I remember when Jesus was on the cross, he said he was thirsty. Do you remember? I thirst. And he was asking the world for a drink. The one that turned water into wine was asking the world for a drink. Do you remember what we brought him? We brought him wine vinegar. That's the cheap stuff. That's the stuff my mates used to get drunk on outside of uh, Sainsbury's as soon as they turned 18. Actually, fake ID, as soon as they turned 14. It was the one-pound cider bottles that you could drink down and guzzle down and get drunk off of. That's the stuff the world brought Jesus. And you think, oh man, if I was there, you know, if I was in the crowd, I'd have gone and got him the finest wine. I'd have raided a wine cellar. I'd have spent all the money I needed. I'd have given Jesus the best. He needed VIP treatment. That's what I'd have brought him. But hang on. Jesus says every day, what you do for the least of these, you do for me. What you do day by day in your work at Eden is fantastic. It's brilliant. But we do it out of service and honour to the Jesus who laid down his life for us. Save us from hell and death and judgment and punishment and bring us into his family to adopt us. That's who we serve. That's why we do it. I'm praying one day I'll be able to find an adoptive family for Robert. A family that says, you know what? I don't care how old you are. I don't care you've got speech delay. I don't care that you've got some difficult to manage behaviours. So have I. 
but I want you to know the grace of God, not as a hobby, not, not once a week at a church service, but 24 hours a day, seven days a week in this house, you are loved, you belonged, because I once met a God who said, in my father's house are many rooms, and I've gone there to prepare a place for you. That's the God of hospitality we serve. We need a nation to rise up and welcome these kids home. One last little idea. I don't need each of you to adopt 10 children. I did not bring my van, and I do own a van. I need, well, here's the numbers. When we started Home for Good, there was about 5,000 kids waiting for adoption, and we were short about 9,000 foster families across the UK. And the government has no idea where it's going to find these thousands of people to step forward. But it's because the government hasn't bet on the church. Of churches like the ones you've planted or that you go to, there's at least 15,000. How's your maths? Have you done the maths? Don't need everyone to adopt 10 children. I don't even need everyone to adopt. I just need one new fostering or adopting family per church. The rest of the church to wrap around them. And we meet the entire need. Wouldn't that be amazing? That's totally doable, isn't it? That's what I'd ask you to pray for. If you're able to stand, let's pray. And then I'll hand you back to Andy. Father God, thank you. Even though we were far away from you, even though we had disobeyed you, even though we had difficult to manage behaviours, Lord, you opened your arms and you welcomed us home. Lord Jesus, thank you that you laid down your life, that we could become your brothers and sisters. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're the one that comes into our hearts and minds and confirms to us that we can call God Abba, Father. Thank you. Thank you for that radical welcome that we were your enemies and yet you made us your sons and daughters. Lord, in a time of um, coronavirus and people battening down the hatches and locking their doors and clearing the shelves, would your church rise up and show radical hospitality? Would this nation see the gospel is not just words that we sing on a Sunday, but it's lives that we live out for you? Lord, we pray that as we see the vulnerable day by day in our work and in our neighbourhoods and in our families, Lord, what we do for them, what we do for the least of them, we do for you. Our prayer is that children like Robert around the country that don't know you and don't know the love and security of a loving family will be welcomed by your church, that we would step up, we would become the parents that these children need, not driven by our own needs for family, but led by these needs of these children for them to have family. Lord, let your church rise. Lord, I thank you for sisters and brothers here. Thank you for the amazing work that Message does here in the UK and around the world. I pray every blessing on them. I pray anything that I've said that is helpful will keep them going. Uh, through dark days we might have to face ahead. Lord, would your gospel, will your word root us, uh, that knowing that what we do matters to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support our work or even get involved with one of our teams. We also have another podcast called The Flow Podcast, where we share stories and testimonies of the amazing things that God's doing in people's lives. Search for The Flow Podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a brand new episode there right now.